You're listening to Thaisi Women Diaspora, Episode 9. For 30 years, Saki has worked to end domestic violence against South Asian women. For urgent support, call their helpline at 212-868-6741 or visit them at sakhi.org. Welcome, listeners, to They See Women Diaspora, a podcast about South Asian women who grew up around the world. I'm your host, Mala Kumar. My guest today is Uthama Patel, a writer and business intelligence manager based in Singapore. Great to have you, Uthama. It's really awesome that we were able to connect despite being 12 hours apart. (laughs) (laughs) That's the world we live in these days. (laughs) Pleasure, Pleasure to be here. Um, All right, so let's get right into it. So you've got a super interesting background. Can you tell me where you grew up and how you landed there in the first place? Uh, Sure. I grew up in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. And how did I end up there? (laughs) My parents were living there actually at the time that I was born. And um, my, my father had... They were living in London prior to Abu Dhabi, and then my father had gotten a job offer in Kuwait. And so him and my mom and my sister at the time, who I think was a a year old, went to Kuwait, and they actually had a bit more trouble adjusting to both the work life and just life in general in Kuwait. And while he was in Kuwait, he had gotten an offer. My dad worked in... um, uh, the financial world. So he had gotten an offer for something in Abu Dhabi. And, you know, because they had made this big move out from London to the Middle East, you know, they thought, okay, let's, let's try it. You know, let's just try another place. And worst case, we don't like it, we'll leave. And uh, yeah, they, they moved to Abu Dhabi and they lived there. And it's been, you know, I think for them, 30 years, 30 plus years. Oh, wow. So they've been there ever since? They have. Well, they're no longer there, so I should probably um, adjust that story. They have. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they, um, they moved out there in uh, 81, and they were there until 2010. Um, and actually, and this is kind of one of the things about living in a, in a country like that, but in 2010 was when my dad passed away. And um, you can't Sorry actually, to hear that. Thank you. Um, you can't actually live there unless you have a work visa, um, you know, or, or specifically sponsored by someone. So, in fact, in 2010, we just had to kind of up and leave. And um, my mom is now, she, she's, a, she's more of a nomad than me. Um, she moves around between Pondicherry, uh, where my father's father still lives, uh, and California, where my sister is, and Singapore, where I am, and she's she's been great to kind of um, hop from place to place. But <laughs> she makes it sound easier than it is. But I, I know that that's not easy. But um, uh, yeah, so so they were there from from eighty one to two thousand ten. Wow, yeah, that's that's telling. So I it was funny. I was I was just in Dubai with um, my partner for a couple of weeks, and I have a couple of friends who live there, and they talk about that anxiety of just like if I lose my visa for work, then I'm basically out of here. And I've been here for like five, six, ten years, whatever. 
So what was it like kind of always having that over your head? Or did you even realize that as a child? You know, it's interesting because as a child, I had a vague idea about it, but it really didn't trouble me in the way that many things don't trouble you as a child. But for me, I moved back to Abu Dhabi uh, after I did my master's and I started working there. And that's when it became really, you know, really clear what they, um, what the effects of that are, you know, for a new family or a young family or anybody trying to establish themselves somewhere. Because what I had always thought uh, and still do is that for me, that inability to be Emirati, to be local, to, uh, you know, I knew I was never going to have the passport. I knew I was never going to be able to be local. It, it was actually, to me, a kind of freedom, because unlike many immigrant stories that I came across afterwards, where people wanted to be more American or wanted to, you know, assimilate into a particular subculture of, of England, uh, I, I never really felt like I had that as an option. Um, and, and the contrast between being Indian at home and being, say, American outside, I, I didn't ha- there was no being Indian at home and being Emirati outside. How did you describe yourself when you were growing up or did that even cross your mind? Like, what, what am I? How would you answer that question? <laughs> That's really interesting. Uh, w- when I was young, what am I? I still say Indian, you know, I still say Indian. Um, but when I was younger and I said, oh, I'm Indian, nobody said anything afterwards. They were like, yeah, she's Indian. Um, now <laughs> when I say I'm Indian, I say, oh, but you're English, you know, or but your accent or but have you ever lived in India? Um, so there's a lot more questioning around my identity now than there was before. And I suppose that I say that I'm Indian. I, I'm not Indian by nationality. I was born in England, so I'm British by nationality. Um, but I don't really identify as British. And f- for me, Indian is... is uh, I think I say that because probably my values are most Indian, um, which might have been the first time I've ever said that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, is that a bold statement? Can you, can you please is, elaborate? What does yeah, that mean? That is a very bold statement because um, I'm, I'm a very non-traditional Indian. But I think for me, I guess growing up for me, being Indian meant probably I just thought that that just meant being what my family was you know, and, you know, the things that were important to me were, well, family, um, you know, caring for each other, but also this kind of larger caring for a community of people, which didn't necessarily mean a community of other Indian people, but, you know, having lots of people in your house all the time and um, having no formalities in, in, in friendships and relationships and, valuing education and hard work and as I say them they're not necessarily Indian you know but it was kind of two parts of myself that got molded together into values that I learned at home and my race I guess which was Indian and I combined them to say yeah that's I'm Indian <laughs> <laughs> yeah some total yeah. <laughs> Indian. That yeah. Works, you know? yeah I know it can be complicated <laughs> No, that's really interesting. Um, so you you mentioned in your you know your summary about yourself that your father actually grew up in Uganda. Can you talk about that? 
Yes, he was um, he was born in Kampala. And if I'm not completely buttering the name, I want to say that the hospital was like Makrere Hospital. Yeah, Makrere. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, like the university. Yeah. <laughs> okay, there we go. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my my grandfather, who was living in Gujarat at the time before he got married, um, actually got an arranged marriage set up with my grandmother, who was born in um, actually in Jinja. Um, and so he got the kind of visa to go to Uganda or go to Africa at all because of her. Um, and I always like to point that out to me because in all the tellings of these stories, up until I directly asked my grandfather, everybody's like, oh, you know, because of the hard work of your grandfather, <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. or, and the nationality <laughs> of your grandfather. <laughs> Forgot yeah, to mention that part. <laughs> I know. And it's really interesting because once I started asking him about it and then I looked into my grandfather from my mother's side as well um, and she's also Gujarati and it and there's actually a biography written about him so when I was reading that I also discovered in his story that it was you know his mom who left the house first to set up the you know buffalo milk business and but it's really interesting that these narratives get told very much um patriarchically yeah um, and and I and I love reminding my, my grandfather about this um but yeah so so they were they they were in Kakiri actually they had a small um shop there and uh, in my grandfather's words he they sold everything from noodles to motorcycles um mm-hmm. yeah I've been to Uganda <laughs> that's one thing about the Indian stores there like I one of the stores I went and got a beer with a couple friends they were selling shoes non and satellite dishes <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> that's amazing and you know what i've never been to uganda and i really want to go and i want to go with my grandfather and because uh, he tells me wonderful stories and he's taken lots of pictures and um you know i've actually got a picture of my dad when he was about a year old just kind of sitting on the road outside the shop Um, which is is a wonderful picture I'm looking at it right now (laughs) oh nice (laughs) um yeah so they they he was born there they you know um I think were there until they were 10 or 11 and then while living in Uganda my grandfather was introduced to um actually a spiritual uh philosophy of of somebody called Sri Aurobindo and they have a uh, an ashram and a school and kind of a really progressive education system based out of Pondicherry. And um, he decided to enroll my father and my uncle um, into that school. So, you know, my dad went from Uganda to Pondicherry and in Pondicherry was educated in French. So it's interesting that you have, like in your history, you've got multiple generations of kind of like this diaspora effect if you will and so growing up somehow you still identified yourself as being Indian so what do you think like I guess gave that arc or gave that consistency across the generations that at the end of the day you could still identify as Indian? I think language had a big part to play in that and I say that maybe with hindsight because you know I spoke my parents for a long time pretended they did not know how to speak English so that we would only speak Gujarati at home. And they were sort of, I think they were um, expecting that as many children do, you know, going to an English school or you want to 
prove that your English is great. Um, and they didn't want us to lose the Gujarati language. And that language, in fact, combined with living in Abu Dhabi, which was so close to India. So we used to go to India many times a year. We'd go to Surat, where my mom's family lived. We'd go to Pondicherry, where my dad's family lived. And I was able to communicate with everybody in, in my language, in their language. And I think be able to form strong bonds there, be able to relate in a way, even though my life was very different. Um, I think I, I was able to understand a lot more than I, I probably would have been, not have been able to had I not spoken the language. And, you know, my, my parents, because we had no family in Abu Dhabi, um, they also made a big effort to make sure that we maintained our relationships with our family in other parts of the world and we would take trips or my cousins would come for the summer. And so I felt connected to just this ginormous community of Indians, you know, family yeah. and friends and, you know, family friends in Abu Dhabi, many of whom were Indian. And also I say Indian, not Gujarati, because in Abu Dhabi, you know, at that time, there were not necessarily that many, you know, Gujaratis. There was, you know, a few Punjabis, a few Gujaratis, a few, you know, Tamilians, just a mix of people. And so the common factor with everybody was that they were Indian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, and it's also interesting that you would go back to not Gujarat in India. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, funny thing, when I, when I got to uh, university uh, in Chicago, and the first, and I was really excited because I was like, wow, I'm going to meet, you know, I'm going to be in a school in an environment where there's lots of other Indian people. And I've, you know, never really had a group of Indian friends. So I was really excited about that. And one of my first experiences or first conversations um, with a Gujarati boy who I say boy, man, um, he's now a close friend of mine. But I, you know, the first thing I, uh, he asked me was, oh, where, where in India are you from? And then I said, Gujarati. And then he said, oh, are you Patel? Um, and I said, yes. And he said, which Gam are you from? Um, and in, in Patel, that Gam means like which specific village? You know, we, we rank our villages and there's a hierarchy of, um, uh, of which villages, you know, better off and, <laughs> than others. And there's this, this kind of sub-caste system within a village. Um, with it, and and I, I had to call my parents and say, "What what village am I from, and what what is this?" Because I didn't know, you know, I didn't know. <laughs> um, so I never really identified that strongly as Gujarati. But I, I, when I got to university, I saw those groups of, you know, um, lots of Patel pride and 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 other <laughs> other community pride. Yeah, <laughs> which, which I was like, oh, okay, great, but I don't identify that strongly with it. <laughs> oh man so you were in Abu Dhabi until the end of high school and then you came to Chicago for university yes that's right so I was in um, Abu Dhabi until I think I was 17 when I left and I was in uh, I was at Northwestern um, for a few years for my undergrad um, and then I actually moved to Honesdale Pennsylvania which is um a, a, a small, small town um, in the Poconos Mountains where Highlights Magazine is based. Um, and that was my first job. 
so that's where I was, and I was the only um, ethnic person there, which is what they called me. Um, oh yeah, without, without, yeah, without shame, and and that was a really interesting experience, actually. <laughs> Um, Man, so tell me what what was it like to go from, I I mean I guess even now Abu Dhabi is not a huge city, but it's still very cosmopolitan. So what was it like to go from cosmopolitan Abu Dhabi to big city Chicago and then a tiny town in Pennsylvania? <laughs> it was, it was very interesting. Um, you know Abu Dhabi when I left it was really nothing like it is now. So. In my mind, Chicago was a huge city. Um, Honesdale, of course, was a very tiny, tiny town. Um, but we kind of had this idea when we lived in Abu Dhabi that everywhere outside of Abu Dhabi was bigger and better. <laughs> you know, because in the late 80s and early 90s, it was, it, was a, it was still developing. It's nowhere, nothing like it is now. You know, I saw the first the first mall, the first cinema come um, to Abu Dhabi, the, the, the first Starbucks was just like a few months before I graduated. Um, so I think leaving that and then going to Chicago, there wasn't as much of a shock in terms of city, even though it was such a different city. But I guess, you know, you're at university and it's campus life. I think the difference really was, was, was in the people that I met. Um, and it just opened my eyes to how other um, South Asian communities operated in other parts of the world. And it, it was actually during my time in Chicago that I um, got inspired, I think, to to eventually want to start something which I did many years later, which was South Asian Parent, um, you know, which is a platform for South Asian families. And, and it was because when I, when I arrived in Chicago and, and met other Indians, it was the first time I realized that there was this thing where people were saying one thing to their parents and doing something else or you know this this dual kind of yeah the double life yeah, yeah the absolutely. double life and it honestly it shocked me and that was you know maybe naive maybe just I had never had that experience I had not been exposed to it and that to me was the biggest jolt and it wasn't the dishonesty that that bothered me it made me just really sad that you know there were there were so many people um, who were not being their truest selves with the people who had created them. And I think that 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 was a big kind of change experience for me. Did you have a similar experience or were you able to be pretty honest with your parents? Yeah, I, I did not have that experience at all. I was, um, you know, of course, like every kid does, there are things that you keep from your, <laughs> from your parents, but nothing that was so definitive or, or big. You know, and things things like eating meat or drinking or, I mean, even, even having boyfriends, you know, I, I it's not like my parents were like, yeah, go and do that. That's great. Um, but I think I was just surrounded by a community of people where there was variation. So some parents were strict and some parents were not. And maybe it was combined with my personality, but I would, I would tell them um, you know, any, any kind of relationship in my life that's been important, that was something that I shared with them. And I, I give full credit to that to my parents, of course, because they were open and they always made us feel like we could. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people have to lead that double life for safety reasons and then for just mental, like mental health, I think is kind of overused, but just the idea of like, 
not feeling like they're going to be ostracized but then some of it is just some people are shitty yeah <laughs> it's right. kind of the gamut of reasons yeah. Yeah. yes that is true um yeah. yeah and then you know you you asked uh one of the questions in in your um questionnaire before where you asked about the difference that I kind of noticed between myself and even my family that lived in other parts of the world um and and still uh do and I think you know it brought me back to the same thing where I think um because the community around us was no not one it was not singular so it wasn't just Gujaratis um it was smaller um it was not as kind of deep rooted in its integration in that place and it didn't have this history or or maybe we were in it because the Indian community there now is quite different um we we didn't have a strong of a what will they think yeah yeah that's true over us you know yeah what is the community going to think yeah yes and and again 100% credit to my parents because they they could have felt that with their community back in India or back in England um and and they didn't and you know we we were sort of we were taught basically that you only get validation from inside yourself and not outside yourself and you know it's probably been the thing that allows me to honestly do everything <laughs> you know whether it's in my career or my relationships or where i've lived um but that that feeling that, that thing that people have that i have seen in so many friendships and and relationships i've had since um is so large and so looming and you know can, can be both enabling and disabling yeah absolutely i mean i think that's one of the most common themes that i hear with any South Asian is what is the community going to think? So that's interesting that you largely got to live outside of that norm. I think it's great. Yeah. 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 It's, it's um, fortunate. Yeah, yeah, it's very fortunate. <laughs> Saki exists to end domestic and sexual violence against South Asian women. Although domestic violence has long been a silent subject in the community, two in five South Asian immigrant women in the U.S. are survivors. In its 30 years, Saki has united survivors, communities, and institutions to create powerful and sustainable change. Saki offers a range of services for the community. For urgent support, call their helpline at 212-868-6741, and to learn more, visit their website at sakhi.org, or follow them on Twitter at sakhinyc. Um, So you moved to Pennsylvania after university. And you were working for Highlights Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tell me about that. Wonderful, wonderful little place. Um, it's funny because, you know, we thought Scranton was the big town. <laughs> and then the office came out and you're like, oh. <laughs> yeah, Scranton was 45 minutes away and that's where we went to get most things. <laughs> uh, that That was... You know, it was a wonderful place to work um, because it was this cute editorial office in a small town. Um, What I got from that that experience was most of the people there who had not, definitely not left the country, perhaps not left the state, some not left, you know, beyond a few miles. Um, There was nothing, they were not suspicious of me. (laughs) People just didn't know, didn't know, hadn't been, hadn't seen, hadn't read, hadn't watched. Um, but they were 
extremely nice and extremely caring and welcomed me into their home. And it was a population of 2,000 at the most, I think. It was tiny. It was so small, people just looked out for each other. And it just so happened that I was the exotic one. And so people <laughs> saw me quicker, you know, when I came down the street. Um, I don't know, it's interesting. It, it probably made me less, it made me more forgiving. <laughs> Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> um, so how long were you there? Uh, only a year. It was only okay. a year. Yeah. yeah. That's a decent <laughs> amount of time, though, for a town of 2,000. <laughs> yes. Yes, it was teeny tiny. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, so then what happened after you left the town of Highlights? <laughs> so after I left Honesdale, I started my graduate degree at the University of Cambridge, um, which is also teeny tiny town in a very <laughs> different a way. Yes, different way. <laughs> it's got a large reputation for a very small place. Um, so I did um, my graduate degree there. What did you study? I studied developmental psychology, so social social and developmental psychology, actually. So then, what happened after Cambridge? Uh, after Cambridge, this is where it gets fuzzy. Um, after Cambridge, I made a short attempt at moving to Toronto. I was at the time in a relationship with somebody who lived there. And, you know, I did manage to get a position. And I might be the only person who's been rejected a Canadian visa. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, I... I didn't get it and I couldn't go. <laughs> Jeez, do you yeah. know why why that happened? No, I mean, no, I don't actually. Um, wow. Because, you know, it seemed really straightforward. There's like a point system. But, you know, yeah. the, the, the reason they gave is, you know, we don't have enough proof that a Canadian would not be able to do this. Oh, um, yeah, that's true. To do yeah. this position. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. they kind of standard up there. Um, and that actually was, it was a blessing in disguise because then I was thinking about, right, what do I do? And... The idea that I had had for South Asian Parent, I was finally able to execute it. And I decided to move back home to Abu Dhabi because that's what you do when you need to start your own business. <laughs> yeah. <Yep. laughs> do, it, do it out of your childhood bedroom. Um, and yeah, I started the magazine there. Um, I was there for two years um, before my dad passed away and we had to leave. But yeah, going back there was, was very different to, to move back there. And um, yeah, my memory's, my memory's awful, but I, I did also work there for, for some time and, and then I launched the magazine. So being there as a professional was very different than being there as a grown-up. And I started noticing all these things about the city and the country and the culture that I didn't that I didn't like as much, you know, things that I knew. And as a child, it was easy for me to brush it off. Um, but sometimes it is a city that can feel um, very sexist and very racist and very classist. Mm -hmm. yeah. And those things were so apparent to me uh, when I moved back. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, so how do you think being back in Abu Dhabi kind of framed the way that you launched your business? Uh, I guess it was rather than being back in Abu Dhabi, um, it was more actually being back at home um, because, as I mentioned before, you know, the whole premise of that platform and that magazine was to get South Asian families talking about things that were taboo. 
Um, and I think coming back and living at home and, you know, having that base of what was different for me really pushed me to want to create that platform for other people. And of course, being in Abu Dhabi just, you know, made the issues more apparent because they're not just South Asian issues, right? Um, even, even in the Arabic community, you know, talking about disability or talking about sex or any of the things that are, that are considered taboo, there's lots of overlap there. Um, I was surrounded by both the good and the bad of it while I was at home in Abu, in Abu Dhabi. Um, so there's a lot of content. <laughs> a lot of content. <laughs> yeah. What are some of the some of your favorite or kind of the most impactful examples that came out of that magazine? Um, you know, it's it's never what you think it's going to be. You know, I always thought it would be related to maybe um, relationships or career choice, um, but. The ones that seem to resonate the most with people that people, you know, to this day continue to read and comment on. Um, and I'm thinking of one in particular, which was a piece written by um, uh, a young woman talking about her weight and her skin color and, you know, how she felt like she was always just a little bit less than others who were skinnier or fairer. And I think that one really resonated with a lot of people because, you know, it, it's one of those things that, you know, it's not as obvious as um, some of the other taboos, you know. It's quite subtle. It comes out in daily conversation and, you know, little taunts and comments from, from people, but internalized over so many years um, causes many people daily unhappiness and I think I think that's the one that I that has always um, with with the audience resonated the most um, we talked about things like eating disorders this kind of tendency you know with with mental illnesses just in some communities to say oh he's crazy or oh she's just being difficult or you know I think the interesting thing that came out of that platform was there's so many things that we didn't have the language to talk about with our families we, we struggle with the words and then we keep things to ourselves and and I think that that came up regardless of what the topic was really um, it came up a lot that it was just I don't actually know what exactly I'm going to say even if I want to say this to my family mm -hmm. yeah no it's it's interesting yeah I mean so I wrote a book actually and it sold all around the world and it was it's about being gay and South Asian Okay. And so I had a lot of people write to me over the years kind of saying, thank you for basically this resource. Like, this is how I'm, the language I'm going to use to come out to my parents. Yeah. And I, it's interesting because what you were saying earlier resonated with me in that your life wasn't so super easy and that everything was handed to you. But by the same token, you had parents who were open-minded enough to at least understand where you're coming from and let you express yourself. And even though for me it didn't happen overnight, like I was eventually able to do that to the point where I knew my safety was not going to be compromised and I'm not going to be disowned by my family. And that was a huge thing because a lot of people don't have that. Yes. And so I think it's really great that you gave, even if it was temporary, you gave a place for people to talk about these issues where, you know, if they had done it on their own, there could have been some serious consequences. Right. Yeah. And, you know, my my hope is that it's it in some 
way or form, I will bring it back and uh, <laughs> I will, you know, kind of revive it. But um, yeah, I think the the resources for some of these things are limited. So anyone doing any small bit, I think is great. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. That's great. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, <Congrats>. you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so after you had to leave Abu Dhabi, you said your family moved to London. Yes, so we... Um, I was there, yeah, three years, um, three years before I before I moved again, um, and living in London was it was um, for somebody who who doesn't like formalities. Um, the UK is is quite a formal place. It's exhausting. <laughs> There's this uh, there's this list that is circulating. So I worked in London for a year, and one of my colleagues is Swedish, and she sent me this list of like the isms that British people use to be the polite way to say that we don't want to talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> one of them was like, oh, you must come over for dinner. And it's like, yeah. no, that absolutely does not mean they want you to come over. But any other person be like, okay, that's great. My colleagues inviting me yeah. over. No, they're, they are not. Must, you know, you should mean it if you say must, but no, not at all. <laughs> yeah, wasn't great. <laughs> It um, great. <laughs> what part of London did you is your family house in or did you live in? We were in um St. John's Wood, so quite central London. Um yeah, it wasn't the easiest place to make friends or feel like you really had a um support around you immediately without making plans three weeks in advance, that kind of thing. So yeah. The lack of sun <laughs> the lack of sun. I'm as a New Yorker especially. Oh my god. Yeah. Like it just yeah. I, it's like I, I lived in France for a year too, and I was in Lyon, which has more rainfall annually than London does. But the cloud coverage in London was something I could never get over. Like, yeah. didn't matter how exhausted I was, what flight I had just gotten off, if I saw the sun, I'd have to go outside. <laughs> like, morally <laughs> obligated to go outside. Yeah. Whereas if you're in New York or I'm sure Abu Dhabi, you're like, ah, I'll, I'll go tomorrow. It's okay. I'm tired. Exactly. Now. It'll still be there. You know, it'll yeah. still be there. But nope. <laughs> then February comes no. and you don't see the sun at all. <laughs> And it's amazing because I never thought, I'm like, oh, how much is it really going to affect me? You know, and in general, I'm always like, I, I don't talk much about the weather because I'm like, it's the one thing we can't change. And yet we talk about it so much. But um, in London, that was the first time I was like, yes, this is a real thing that really affects me. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it's gloom. <laughs> yeah, there's just, I feel like there's an energy that's missing. And like a city as big as London doesn't have the kind of energy that you would expect. Right. And I think it's largely because of the clouds, <laughs> all yes. the damn things in the yes. world. It's so funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what were you doing in London? You were working on your you know, platform, but then were you working as well? Yes. No, I was, I was doing it full time. That was kind of my big push because I thought, right, I'm in a city where I can do a bit more with this. Um, so I was doing South Asian Parent um, full time. And there were, you know, there was a team of writers. We did a lot of work with um, the BBC um, and some local councils to to run campaigns. Um, so after London, you, what was the next move? After London, it was Hong Kong. Okay. And, <laughs> why not? <laughs> um, why not? Right. Well, the move to Hong Kong was. Um, that was a move for love, <laughs> if I can say that. I, while living in London, I um, met Rishi, who is my current husband. He was on holiday, and um, we 
you know, have a common friend and happen to meet. And um, yeah, we, we stayed in touch and I will not bore everyone with the details of, of what happened. But I, I then decided that, you know, we didn't want to do long distance and it was either he would come to London or I would go to Hong Kong. And I, I pretty much was like, oh, here we go. Here's my opportunity to go somewhere else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So I I was very willing and, you know, I, I, I went to Hong Kong to check it out and I'd never, ever even thought of Hong Kong as a place I might ever live. It just never crossed my mind, honestly, until I, uh, until I met Rishi and, and I thought, okay, cool. So I went, I checked it out. I spent a few weeks seeing if I would get a job. I, I did. And then <laughs> I moved and, you know, Hong Kong is Hong Kong is a mad and marvelous place. So <laughs> that was my that was my next uh, next stop, and I am also a very expensive place, and so that's um, yeah actually why I put South Asian on parent on hold at that time, or at that time I didn't. I just was was doing it a bit less, um, but I got a full time job working in marketing um, again, something completely new to me while I was in Hong Kong in order to support being able to live in Hong Kong. Um, and Hong Kong was a, Hong Kong is interesting because it's a really transitory place, like lots of expats, people are in and out. Um, it makes people really friendly and very spontaneous. And it is a bit of a, you know, I'm not, the, I'm not the most social person. So being in Hong Kong was just completely out of my comfort zone. People are always out. Um, and, you know, when you move somewhere new, you want to say yes to anything anybody asks you to do. And I just kind of found myself exhausted by the amount of social activity, but also living spaces in Hong Kong are very small. And so, um, you know, people, people want to be outside of their homes, work hard, play hard type of mentality there. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you've ended up in so many like finance banking centers, <laughs> and you oh, didn't. What yeah. am I doing? I know. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so Hong Kong, and then now you live in Singapore. Yes, there's a stop in between. Though we moved from Hong Kong to New York for two years. We moved there because after we got married, we just wanted to live somewhere new together, and that was the first time I was writing full-time um so uh, and what better place than new york to do it in yep. so yeah so i wrote my book it. yeah oh, it's just uh it's just the most wondrous place to do that so it is yeah um all right so i know it's hard to pick but if you had to like tell me like what are some of the favorite things that you can remember about the places that you've lived favorite things about each of the places not each, but just like if you if you had to look back in your life or if you're, you know, with your child and you say, they ask you, mom, where should I go live? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, I think Abu Dhabi is definitely the favorite, probably because it's home. It feels like home, even though that physical home no longer exists for us. It was a safe idyllic beautiful place to live a great place to have a childhood and being able to see a city grow and to see things you know come new and see how people react to it and I realize how rare that is now um, 
to be able to witness that. And I really, really enjoyed that. I think there was a lot of value in that because as nostalgic as I am, when I go back, every time I go back to Abu Dhabi, you know, it takes me a day before I'm, you know, I'm like, oh, that place, it's no longer there. Or, oh my God, this, you know, all this development over here. And I can't, I, I can't recognize it most of the time. Um, but it has really, it has made me accept how natural and inevitable change itself is. And I think that is both the factor of the city of Abu Dhabi and itself and the fact that I had to leave it, you know, and um, what, that, what that meant for me later in my life. Uh, the other favorite definitely has to be New York because it's where I could do what I love to do most. And, you know, anytime anybody has the opportunity to do that, they should. And, you know, wherever that place is for them. Um, yeah. You yeah. Know, because I think New York is one of those places where a lot of people find themselves, I think. Yeah. Every combination of person goes. The reason I moved to New York was I, I interned with a lot of law students who were in New York and the way that they spoke about it with such passion and just like they were clearly so different but they all got along and they just understood yeah. something about the world that I hadn't been exposed to so I went there and 10 years later <laughs> <laughs> yeah how wonderful yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah that's, that's great. great okay yeah so you were in New York this past summer and you were able to meet with agents so what was that like what happened it was cool you know it was the first time I've ever pitched to agents in person so obviously I was quite nervous going into it and I you know it was definitely luck that the first agent I sat in front of you know gave her my pitch and she said oh that sounds right up my alley and it just sort of eased <laughs> eased the tension and um, made it easier for me to continue to pitch to other agents it was interesting because it was a writers um, conference there were about 80 plus people there I think I was maybe one of two or three Indian people mm -hmm. um, predominantly white predominantly male mm -hmm. and that was interesting I didn't expect that from a conference in New York and so you know in, I was taken aback by that but on the other hand my story was unique so I think it got more attention it you know takes place the novel set in Dubai um, it's about you know an expatriate community so there's lots of elements to the story that set it apart which I think was a good thing <laughs> so oh god I mean you're, yeah your story kind of stirs up so many thoughts for me because when I was writing my book I finished the manuscript and then I sent it off to probably I think in total about a hundred agents and this is not to discourage you because obviously everybody's journey is different but yeah. I sent it to a hundred agents and I, I did my research you know I went on I joined this little like service that gives you access to a bunch of different agents and gives you right. some basic contact info so then being the online sleuth I am I went and <laughs> dug up as much as I could about names that I thought might be interesting so basically women of color but then yeah. in the slog of searching I realized that Basically, none of them were women of color, <laughs> and even the ones that were, only represented white guys. It was it was really really frustrating. I mean, so the majority of the publishing industry in the states, especially, is you know white women who are under white bosses or white male bosses. That's really the landscape of like the big publishing houses. So, 
I actually never um, landed an agent. I ended up getting a book deal directly through a small publisher, and that worked out to be a lot nice. better. Awesome. Yeah, great. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. You know, I didn't, I, I, I also, like yourself, did, <laughs> did a lot of it, um, research online as, you know, outside of the conference. I kind of yeah. didn't want to put all my hope into that. And there's, a, there's lots of people out there saying that they want diverse stories. Yeah. And then what I come to realize is that's diversity as defined by them. <coughs> and, yeah. You know, I, I got a lot. Um, I did get some feedback from different agents and it is actually helpful to see how people are receiving it even if it's you know they don't want to publish it because there were definitely a few comments in there about you know couldn't couldn't your main character do a little bit more on behalf of her community or her people and it just made me think about what you know why do minorities or why do some people have to be representative um of a whole and why can't they just have a regular story and i don't think i would have been asked that question if my character was a white american no you wouldn't have you wouldn't have absolutely not like that i think the white american individualism is alive and well but for white men (laughs) you know as soon as you want to talk about that individualism about a minority then it becomes like this identity politics thing which is like that's that's a crazy double standard how come i can't have my individual story but somebody else can yeah, exactly. And it's, I don't know, it sort of sends you down this path of, you know, how much do I, um, how much do I change the story? How much do I adjust the story? How do I still remain sincere to my, yeah. you know, characters and what yeah. I'm trying to get across? And, I mean, when I wrote my book and it came out, I immediately got connected to a bunch of Indian and South Asian authors, which is awesome. Like, I love that network. But seeing the kind of stories that get published in different places, like, I think the only person who... I won't mention any names, but the only person I know who was able to get their story published as as I think intended works in the industry. So they they know everybody there and they're able to find the right agent, find the right publisher immediately. For those of us who are not in that industry, it's a lot harder because I think our stories get sanitized and they get told in a way that we don't necessarily want. So I think it's great you did that conference and I'm sure you're going to land an awesome agent. So what is your book about? So it's a novel set in modern day Dubai, specifically within a community living on Palm Island. So quite an opulent setting. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's, about, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's about a woman who doesn't want to have children, but falls pregnant and finds out her baby has a fatal heart defect. Oh, wow. And the complications in the story begin from that and from the fact that she keeps this diagnosis a secret from her husband Mm -hmm. and his parents whom she lives with. So they're in a joint family set up within this, within this community. Um, And then the story continues. So it's both a reluctant coming of age as a mother story um, on one side, you know, she doesn't want to have children uh, then is kind of, facing being pregnant and then her mixed emotions around finding out this kind of horrible fate um, about the baby but it's also a lot about allegiance to family and what that means in this in this day and age and particularly because it's set within a joint family you know about how we can kind of responsibly care for each other without imprisoning each other Mm -hmm. and you know the expectations put on both men and women, but in the context of this story, particularly women, about you know how they should how they should feel 
about motherhood or or what they should want um, or not want or what their what their duty is and one of the things I've always been interested in you know when I look at lots of communities around the world and I'm in this scenario it's an expatriate Indian community you know no matter how educated or financially independent women have become in many parts of the world they are sort of they are held to certain domestic standards that are different you know they're different standards than they are for men and that's always been to me frustrating and interesting to see how that continues to carry on and why many women who could fight back against that don't actually fight that yeah it's actually it's a super interesting question so I, i worked at the united nations for a long time in international development and okay. there's this like there's this understanding in the in the world that we have that if you give a woman in most any part of sub-Saharan Africa even a very basic education like second third standard education the financial capability of her goes up and then the de- decision making power over her own body goes up and this is something you see throughout the entire continent but then you do the same yeah. thing in India and but not even just India basically anywhere in South Asia like a, a woman could have a PhD would be the highest ranking in her field and somehow that autonomy over her own body is still not realized at least not to the extent that it would be you know if it were an african woman and it's it's a very bizarre and frustrating phenomenon throughout the continent because it's present in the diaspora community to a lot large extent it's present throughout the actual subcontinent it's present throughout no matter what caste you are religion you are ethnicity what language you speak it's just like a unifying thing yeah. across south asia it's it's so so interesting and so bizarre and very frustrating yeah. and and you know also in no matter what kind of level of of wealth even you know because i yeah. think there's this kind of face that certain communities or populations put of being very modern <laughs> or being very forward thinking or being educated or being you know, the fact that they're living internationally somehow makes them better. Yeah. Um, and, and yet are, are living by really, really traditional um, beliefs. And so, yeah, that's, that's definitely one of, the, one of the main things explored in yeah. the book. And then, you know, obviously she's, she's dealing with um, a baby that she may potentially lose. Mm-hmm. The central character also has just lost her father. So grief... Grief is another theme in the book and it's, you know, kind of tracking the journey of how grief can be something that disables a person, but can also eventually lead to a type of empowerment, you know, and how kind of learning that, you know, nobody belongs to you and, you know, you don't belong to anybody really. And um, you know, taking, taking control of your happiness. And so it's kind of this mixture between, you know, what what we do for ourselves versus what we do for others and and all the gray areas <laughs> that yeah. come with that yeah <laughs> interesting um so now that you're going through this adoption process like what are some of the real life emotions or real life events that you translated into your book <laughs> um i don't know it's it's interesting i guess it's i, I i've always wanted to adopt so one of the you know central kind of motivators for writing this book or the idea for this book actually came to me a long time ago in the form of sort of a letter that I was writing in my mind to a biological child that I would not have 
Um, and that's purely because of the decision I made that I wanted to adopt. And, you know, as I've grown older, I may have biological, I may not. Um, but I had always kind of in my mind thought, what if I just chose not to? And then it led to, you know, shouldn't every woman have that choice? Mm-hmm. And I also really wanted to explore a character that was the opposite of me. And I've always wanted, I, in, it's a kind of pattern in things that I write about. Yeah. And I, I've always wanted children and I've always been quite maternal, I would say. And I really wanted to explore a character and allow a character that did not have that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was very, it wasn't like, oh, maybe I will, maybe I won't. It's like, a, no, I just, I don't want this. Yeah. And it, within a community and within a world where that is still not, it's still not accepted, yeah. you know, despite what people will say about it. Um, and, you know, so I think that choice really, um, a lot about, a lot of my writing about choice and the choice that not just women, but also men have. And, you know, a lot of assumptions are made about motherhood, but that also then in turn makes assumptions about fatherhood mm-hmm. and how sometimes it gets devalued or you know just less emphasis is put on it because less expectations are put on it yeah. um, and i think going through the adoption process you know with myself and my husband having in that process completely equal roles mm-hmm. i don't know has got me thinking about you know what if we did that when we are talking about biological children as well and obviously, you know, the baby is carried in a mother. So there are some, there are some differences, but I think we, we exaggerate some differences where there need not be any. Yeah, I think, I think really from personal experience, I think it's just been exploring motherhood as a choice rather than an assumption. Yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, if you're to kind of contrast the reaction that people have with adoption, because I, I don't, honestly, I don't know a lot of people who have adopted. And I think part of the reason is, there's just a lack of enthusiasm that I see from outside communities. Like it's kind of not devalued, but it's just not put on the same level of motherhood and fatherhood and paternalistic and maternalistic values. So can you kind of talk me through like, what is that contrast that you have in real life adopting versus this character who I would imagine tells people, or if she decided to tell people she's pregnant would get a very enthusiastic response. (laughs) Yeah, uh, definitely. I think, you know, interesting for the character in the book, you know, whenever she tells people that she's pregnant, she doesn't tell that many people, but when she, when she does, the response is this extreme enthusiasm that overtakes her own because, you know, she doesn't have as much enthusiasm, but it's like an overwhelming enthusiasm from other people. And it's almost a celebration without thinking about, is it a celebration? Is this something you really want? There's a lot of questions that are never asked when, when we're talking about having biological children. People assume that it's good um, for the mother, for the family. In my experience of sharing news about adoption, look, for the most part, people are very supportive and they get excited. But... I will say that in the, fir- the very first few instances where we shared with people, there were a lot more questions. It wasn't immediately accepted that it was an extremely positive thing. And I think people would ask a little bit, 
you know, without asking directly, is it because you can't have children? Yeah. That's always the first yeah. assumption. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that's always the first assumption. And, and for, for us, it's not because of that. So we'd move on from there. But then there would, there would still be a lot of questions. And I don't want to say questions are a bad thing because I want people to ask us about them. But adoption does not get that um, boundless enthusiasm, mm-hmm. immediate enthusiasm. I think it's like, oh, that's interesting. Why? Um, what age? Have you thought of a gender? Like, oh, there's lots of kind of quick <laughs> things that, that get asked in the adoption conversation that um, I think would come much later in the biological conversation. Yeah. If what I'm looking at is, as, is a comparison between the two, then, you know, in, in lots of things, you know, people announce their pregnancies and there's larger than life ways of <laughs> announcing it these days and everybody is... Um, joyful and beaming Um, I think you know the adoption announcements are handled with more care and sensitivity and maybe they don't need to be you know maybe they need to be shouted out loud just (laughs) as much as the other one Um, but there is that little extra caution um, around that and it's more for the sake of other people than ourselves and I think you know my husband and I would always walk away feeling like we were way more excited than the people we told, (laughs) you know, Um, even though of course you should always be the most excited. But I think when you share the news of a pregnancy, enthusiasm is equaled or if not, sometimes even more from from the people you're giving it to. So when you're thinking about your child, you're going to adopt, you know, what is, what are some of the thoughts that come to mind of eventually my child's going to read my book? Like, what reaction do you hope they have? What do you hope they take away from what you're saying now? Oh, that's a great question. (laughs) Um, What I hope comes through in the book is, I don't know, the allowance for people to be as they are. And it's really, you know, as much as the storyline and the plot is about the baby and the pregnancy, um, I think it's really about the freedom to be ourselves. And And I'd like to think that If my child read the book, that's what they would take out of it. Thank you so much to our guest Uttama for sharing her story. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us on this episode of Desi Women Diaspora, a podcast about South Asian women who grew up around the world. This episode of Desi Women Diaspora was written, produced, and recorded by Mala Kumar, with editing by Kiran Kumar. Our music was recorded by Joseph McDade. Find him on Patreon at patreon.com slash Joseph McDade. And of course, special thanks to our interview guest, Uthama Patel.